Good morning. Today I'm preaching from Luke, chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came back and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You, know, you knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. Jesus replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the final parable in Luke's gospel. It's the parable of the king who gave minas to his servants, ten of them. And he said, I want you to invest this, and we'll see what, how well you've done when I get back. Now, a mina is approximately 100 days average salary for a worker back then, a wage for almost three and a half months. If I were to title this parable, it would be Jesus, majoring on minas. Um, don't worry, it gets worse. Anyway, then Jesus focuses the story even tighter. He focuses on just three of the servants who have received a mina. And it says he gave a mina to one man who worked. He worked diligently for his master. He worked creatively, and he produced ten more minas from the one that had been given to him. In reward for his faithfulness, the master looks at him and says, Well done, my good servant. For each mina, I will give you a city. You will have ten cities in all. The second servant invested and worked diligently for his master and creatively, and he produced five more minas. 
and in reward for his faithfulness, he was given a city for each mina multiplied. Five cities in all. And then there come, we come to the third servant. And he gave back to his master the one mina the master had given him. It had not multiplied or reproduced. Why? Because, the servant says, I wrapped it in cloth and hid it. Why? And he tells us, because I was afraid of you. And I was afraid of what you would do to me if I failed. And his reason for being afraid of his master is interestingly put, isn't it? I was afraid of you, he says, because you are a hard man or a hard taskmaster. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Brothers and sisters, this statement is so wrong on so many levels. The actions of the master were anything but hard. He gave his servants large amounts of both trust and money to invest. He gave them the right and the freedom to invest as they saw fit. And his rewards were staggeringly large. A city for each mina produced? Think about that. What if I gave you money to invest, and every time you, re you reproduce that amount of money, I said to you, every time you reproduce that much money, I will give you a city in Pennsylvania. You can have Allentown. You can have Harrisburg, except that would make you poorer, wouldn't it? You don't? You would, well, no, you don't want a city going bankrupt. Anyway. <laughs> oh, okay, well, all right. Still, a city for a miner and for investing money that wasn't even their own. And his statement, this servant's statement about his master reaping what he did not sow and taking what he did not put in is obviously incorrect. What did he think his master was doing when he gave his servants all of that money and all of that freedom and all of that trust to invest as they saw fit? He was sowing directly into their lives. He was giving them a chance to be fruitful and a chance to be successful. In fact, he was rewarding them far in excess to the proportion of what they put in themselves. It was his money, the master's money at risk, not the servant's. The master was the one taking the real risk here. May we all have such bosses to work for as these servants had. The problem with the third servant was that he didn't really know who his master was. He obviously had no meaningful relationship with him. And he projects falsely onto the master. Not what is in the master's heart, but what is in his heart. By the way, we do that all the time, don't we? We project onto other people what's in us, not what's in them. I expect a bigger amen for that. I'm going to project on you if you don't say amen. He projected onto his master what was untrue. And because of his false perceptions, this man was frozen in fear. But there's more. When his master confronts him, guess what he says? What he does, he attacks his own master. He says, it's your fault I did what I did. You are mean. You are a hard and intolerant master. 
Then the master looks at him and says, If that's what you think, so be it. If that is what you're convinced of, and you're not going to check out the facts with me, I will let you live with your belief. The third servant is judged by his own words, not by the master's heart. Did you, did you see it? Again, I, the master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. The third servant. The master says to the third servant, I thought, if you thought I was that guy, hard and demanding, then the least you could have done was put my money, my mina in a bank and got interest off of it. If you think I was that guy, that hard, intolerant taskmaster, then at least you could have shown a little effort, a little initiative, and done something with it. If you think I'm going to get you for, for, not, for sowing, you know, for reaping where I didn't sow, why were you doing nothing? Instead, you did nothing and you blamed it on me. You created a false image of me and then you acted on that false image. I know there are people here today who are both afraid or angry at God. Some are intimidated by God even as they come to church and try to serve Him. They echo the sentiments of the servant. But let me say it right out. If you are scared of God or angry at Him or frozen by intimidation in His presence, you don't know the real Master. He is not just loving he is love. Every fiber of the being of Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit, they are love, not they are not just loving. Amen. They are generous to the just and the unjust alike. We serve a merciful, merciful God who brings mercy upon mercy to us. Amen. And He died for every one of us here. He has given all of us life. He has given us all gifts he has given us blessings beyond measure. Our God is good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Any image that makes Jesus Christ unloving is a false image created by us, the servants. Any image that makes our Heavenly Father abusive in heart is a false image projected onto Him by com com comparing Him to so many earthly fathers that some of us had to put up with. Amen. It is our hearts this parable teaches us that are hard, not the masters. It is we who hide from him, not the other way around. Jesus risked everything to come and find us. It is we who hold back, not Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to follow him with something that is akin to reckless abandon. You know why God wants us to love him with reckless abandon? Because he loves us with reckless abandon. When Jesus says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you know why he wants us to do that? Because he loves us with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he calls us to take the necessary risks of love and of discipleship. You know, I, when I look at our culture, we have so many idols, so many idols. But you know, the older I get, the more I see the two of the biggest idols we have. One is control. We are controlaholics. And the other is security. We're trying to make our lives safe. We sell alarm systems. People buy handguns and pack heat. People all the time are looking over their shoulder. And the irony is, irony is we try to save our lives by fighting wars. 
especially in the Middle East, only to find we are creating more enemies, not less, which creates more danger, not less. By the way, this is not my opinion. This is the opinion of the CIA, that Christian bunch. We are trying to save our lives with financial security, only to find in our workaholism we're killing ourselves with stress and losing our families with our absence. We're trying to save our lives by avoiding the risks of relationships, only to find we are literally dying from loneliness and the diseases associated with it. You know, you can, we are not dying primarily from the lack of vitamins or nutrition or exercise. In this country, we are dying because we are lonely. As one writer put it, you cannot grow in whatever without taking risks. If you have stopped, you have to take risks. And if you won't stop, Never mind, I'm moving on. <laughs> Nothing can be achieved without risking something. No risk, no reward. You have to risk time or effort or reputation. This is especially true of love. You cannot know people without getting close. But guess what? If you get close to people, they just might hurt you. They just might gossip about you. They just might hurt your feelings. But the only alternative to that is a living death that says no one gets close. Trust no one. Living in isolation. If we're going to be servants of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to love God and others like he asks us. And when we do that, you can never love and be safely involved. Never. We must be willing to accept pain or rejection or hurt or betrayal. But if you're going to love, risk you must. The third servant became afraid and refused to take the necessary risks that were needed to be faithful to the master. Tell me of any great person of faith in the scripture who was not called to great risks. Abraham, I want you to get up. Go where you've never been before, it's not on the map. Go. Moses, I want you to take on the greatest empire in the history of the world up to that point. Take them on. David, I'd like you to fight bears and lions. and on. There's a giant on the agenda. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we want you to defy the king of Persia. Oh, by the way, they may throw you in an oven. Paul. They may get you and crucify you upside down. John the Baptist, if you take on Herod, they may lop off your head. Tell me what great person in Scripture lived a risk-free existence. I challenge you. Let me ask you this morning. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What spiritual gift would you use if you weren't afraid of failure? What call from God would you follow if you weren't anxious about it? What dream has God put in your heart you would pursue? What ministry would you at least try for once? What changes would you make if you had the guts to do it? The third person lost everything, not because he tried and failed. Did you notice that? He, he lost everything because he wouldn't try at all. Not because he risked and lost his master's money, but because he buried it out of a lack of faith. 
He did worse than fail while trying. He did nothing. You see, it's not our failures that bother Jesus. It's doing nothing and then blaming God for it. That's what bothers him. By the way, this ministry here at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ has been fraught with risk. It's why we are where we are today. We, we had to risk God's call when he called us to be diverse. There's so many places this could have blown up. So many places. And there were times I thought it was going to blow up. But I found out that the gospel is stronger and the spirit is stronger and Jesus is stronger than our differences. Hallelujah. No. It's risky when you bring together people who ordinarily would have nothing to do with each other. But here we are. Hallelujah. It's risky when you buy a, a car dealership and meet in the garage on Sunday mornings and you have to borrow $2 million to get it and you don't have $2 million. That's risky business. By the way, during that time when we were moving and buying this place, I broke two teeth grinding them at night. The Lord and I will talk more about that. We risked when we changed worship patterns here. We've risked when we started every new ministry. We are still risking. When Jesus calls you to do something, it almost always requires being countercultural, different, rocking the status quo, going against the world's grain. It always involves risk to follow Jesus. There is no way to be faithful, brothers and sisters, and safe. There is no way. One comes with the other. You see, Christianity is a counterintuitive religion. In other words, it asks us to do stuff that seems unnatural or even seems foolish to us. It asks us to do things that seem to take away life, but actually if you do them and follow them, it will take your life to a whole new level. For instance, Jesus said, if you want to save your life, give it up. We don't. We go, what? If you really want to find life on a whole new level, take up a cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. We go, huh? On the surface, crosses are not much fun. But if you take one up, you discover Jesus was exactly right. Living for something or someone else beyond ourselves helps us to find our true selves and gives us a life, gives life a whole new meaning. Our world says, get. If you want to be happy, get more toys, get more money, get more stuff. Jesus says, if you want to be happy, give. Give to the poor, give to the kingdom. That's counterintuitive. Our world says, you know, if it's the people that are on top. The one percenters, those are the people that really got it made. Jesus says, oh, contraire. Real significance comes from serving and helping people in the kingdom of God. You know when you're really important is not when people serve you. It's when you serve people. The, the safest thing in life, Jesus taught, is the willingness to take risks. That's counterintuitive. But it's true. Spiritually, the lack of prayer, uh, proper risk-taking is a lot deadlier than trying to live a risk-free life. For years, I've complained about what people do 
at the 19th Street entrance ramp onto 581 on the Beltway around Harrisburg. You know the one I'm talking about? They put a quarter-mile ramp so people can speed up and merge into oncoming traffic on that ramp. But time after time, I watch people stop on that ramp at the bottom of the hill and sit and wait. And you know why they're sitting and waiting and not going down that quarter-mile ramp? They think they're being safe. They think waiting until they see no traffic and pulling out on 581 is the least risky thing to do. When in fact it is the most dangerous thing you can do. But while I'm complaining about central Pennsylvania driving patterns, I have one more thing I want to talk about. <laughs> Why is it that a half to two-thirds of people in central Pennsylvania do not know how to properly use a turn signal? Why is that? It drives me nuts. For 35 years I've kept my mouth shut. I'm not doing it this morning. We're going to talk about this. Let me explain to you how I t what happens is I see it over and over again. Somebody's in front of me. They're going to turn left or right. They're going. They hit their brakes. They start to turn left or right. Then they put on their signal, give me two blips, and away we go. Let me explain how a turn signal works to you. A turn signal is to tell you what is going to happen shortly. In, I'm, when I turn on my signal, that's telling you I'm going to slow down. I'm going to turn left or right. You can anticipate that. It's not I'm going to turn on my signal in the middle of a turn, and I hope you notice. That is not how that works. There are other things that bother me, but we don't have time this morning. But, but rest assured, I'll come back to it. Now, while I'm talking about improper ramp entrancing, let me keep going. Tell me if you know the story I'm going to tell. One day I saw a little old lady pull down from that ramp. She went down and she stopped dead on 581. And by the time she was on 581, she finally looked and looked and looked and looked. And finally she saw nobody coming around the bend. So she pulled out and she stopped, started from a dead stop. She was going 10 miles an hour on 581. And then an 18-wheeler came round the bend going 65 miles an hour. I, was, I saw it all. I was right behind her. The truck slammed on his brakes. The tires screeched. White smoke from the brakes bellowed. That truck, I'm, not, I'm serious, that truck got within six inches of that little old lady's car, six inches from squashing her like a bug. And I was sitting there in my car going, Jesus, 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 protect that truck driver. <laughs> I was still upset with the little old lady for driving like that. Help the truck driver. She almost caused a major accident and her own death because she stopped when she should have been accelerating. Her attempts at eliminating risk created giant risk. If you're going to be safe on a ramp, your first instinct should be to hit the gas, not hit the brake. If you're going to enter uh, interstate act properly, it has to be you need to accelerate, not stop. Guess what? Jesus says the same thing. If you're going to follow Jesus, you got to hit the gas. You don't play it safe. You don't stop. You go hard. Otherwise, this thing called Christianity isn't worth snot. 
Larry Loudon is uh, an instructor in risk management. And he writes of how we live in a society so fear-driven that we suffer from what he calls risk lock, a condition which, like gridlock, leaves us unable to do anything or go anywhere. And so he tells us, this is how, excuse me one minute, it takes, it takes courage to wipe your nose in front of 300 people. But he, he comes up with 19 principles. And he says, this is how you get through fear. And here's principle number one. You want to know how to defeat fear in your life? Here is the principle. There is no place that is safe. Everything is risky. If you're looking for absolute safety, you are part of the wrong species, on the wrong planet, in the wrong universe. For instance, you can stay home in bed. But do you know that every year, a half million Americans go to the emergency room. You know why? From injuries from falling out of bed. Every year, you might, you might want to just pull the shades and just hide in your house. There's a risk in that. Did you know that every year at least 10 people die from accidentally hanging themselves on their Venetian blinds? Now, I don't know what kind of coordination it takes to pull that off. And I certainly don't want to do a funeral. How did they die? Well, the Venetian blinds got them, you know. You can hide your money in the house. But that will make you one of tens of thousands of people who go to the emergency room each year because of wounds caused by handling money. Everything from deep paper cuts to strained hernias from carrying it. By the way, that is my fantasy injury. <laughs> I want, you know, one day I want you to hear on the prayer chain, Pastor Woody's in the hospital. Why? He had surgery. Why? He strained a hernia. Why? He was moving his money from one room to the other, and it strained his hernia. He should have used the dolly or the wheelbarrow. Didn't use his legs right. Eileen Guter writes, If you live on bland food so as to avoid an ulcer, drink no tea, coffee, or other stimulants in the name of health, Go to bed early every night. Avoid all controversial subjects so as to never get in a fight with anyone. Mind your own business. Involve, avoid involvement with other people's problems. Spend money only on the necessities. And then keep what money you have left to yourself. You can. But, and all, but all, during that time, you still may break your neck in the bathtub and it will serve you right. I didn't say that. Eileen Gooden said that. Don't, don't persecute the messenger. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ wants us to be free. He wants us to give us life, life more abundant, life eternal. He wants his life flowing through us. He wants to give us a love, a passion, a hope that is worth living for and worth dying for. And it's not till you're ready to die that you're ready to live. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. You can't lose like that. A fully alive person, in order to stay fully alive, must take necessary risks, especially for God. It can be in small ways, 
It can be in all kinds of ways. But risk-taking is the stuff of life for Christians. And if we're faithful, some of the things that may happen to us are simple. We may end up in a blazing furnace. But we won't be consumed because the same guy that showed up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be in the furnace with us too. If we're faithful, we may find ourselves at, at the bottom of an ocean bed. But we're not drowned because the God of Israel is holding back the waves and holding back the water. And you might even find yourself dancing with a tambourine at the bottom of there. Yeah, yeah. One of these days I'm going to get a tambourine and shock you all. <laughs> Pastor Sedner's retired. Someone must pick up the mantle. Uh. If we're faithful, we may find ourselves in prison, yet so full of the Spirit we find ourselves singing for joy at night and talking to angels while we're in the cell. If we're faithful, we may find ourselves being pelted with rocks and being killed, yet the pain we feel in our body is nothing compared to the joy we feel as we look up and see the risen Christ sitting at the right hand of the God the Father and feel His Spirit so empowering us that we praise Him even as we're dying and bless our enemies as well, like Stephen, the first martyr of the church. If we are faithful, we may find ourselves in a car dealership that used to sell sobs. Remember our first motto as a church? We'll turn your sobs into joy. Remember that? We may find... <laughs> oh, some of you are getting it now. Okay. Have to wait on you. All right. And by the way, when we took this building, we went into about $2 million debt. And we didn't have $2 million in the bank. We didn't have $2,000 in the bank, but God provided, and He is still providing. If we are faithful, we may be find ourselves trying a vision that God led us to, but is fraught with difficulty and can fall apart at any point, but still knowing it is God who has called us, and God who empowers us, and God who will complete it, and God who will bless us in our obedience. Are you blessed this morning? I'd rather be in hot water and in God's will than apparently safe and dying a slow death somewhere else. I'd rather be alive and walking with Jesus on the water than cowering in the boat. I'd rather be in the storm with Jesus than without Him on the land. God help us to be faithful, but faithfulness takes risks. Two small boys went into the dentist's office one day and waited for the dentist to get through with his appointment. When he came into the waiting room, the older of the two boys spoke up. Doctor, he said, I want a tooth taken out. I want it pulled. And I don't want any Novocaine, and I don't want it deadened, because I'm in a hurry. The doctor smiled and said, well, you're quite a brave young man. You want a tooth pulled, and you don't want any Novocaine, and you don't want it deadened? And the little boy said, that's right, because we're in a hurry, and I'm not worried about pain. Well, okay, said the dentist, but tell me which tooth is it? And the little boy turned to his smaller friend and said, Show him your tooth, Albert! <laughs> the world is full of people like that, isn't it? 
people who want to see things happen and get things done, but they want somebody else to pay the price and they want somebody else to suffer the consequences. I got to tell you, that is not the way it works. Every now and then, you got to get into the dentist chair yourself. God, help us to be faithful. God, help us to take the risks that faithfulness requires. Because what this parable teaches us is that faithfulness and fruitfulness go hand in hand. The faithful servants in this parable had their efforts multiplied. They were given cities for their faithfulness. And you know what a city is? It's multiplied influence. It's multiplied opportunities to serve. It's multiplied blessings. In the end of this parable, there were two kinds of people. The faithful and the unfaithful, the trusting and the scared, the fruitful and the unfruitful. And those who were alive and expanding and reproducing the master's kingdom and those who were going to die slowly. We're called to faithfulness. And if we do, God will multiply our feeble efforts. Remember a little guy with fish and bread? Remember what God did with that? We are called to leave behind more than we found. It's why we're here. After we're gone, will there be more believers because of your life? Will there be more love in people's hearts walking around because of you? Will there be more compassion? Will there be more justice? Will the world be more just because you lived in this world? Will the kingdom be greater and the master be pleased by the end of the day? What difference will your life make when all is said and done? What lives will have been touched by Jesus through you when it is all over and people look at your casket? What will the master say when your life is done and your investments are examined? What's in your portfolio? This parable teaches us that there's a way that seems safe that is the most dangerous way of all, playing it safe. Did you know that? In, spiritually, playing it safe is the most dangerous way. And there's a way that seems dangerous, Jesus said. Taking risks for Christ and His kingdom, there is a way that leads to life abundant and life eternal. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. One of the things I want us to do before we leave here today, I'd like you to close your eyes and bow your heads, or you can reverse the order. And... I'd like you to think and ask the Spirit here today. Spirit, what is it in my life that you want done that is blocked because of fear? What would I do? How would I live differently? How would I feel differently if fear was not controlling this part of my life? How would it be different? Let the Spirit search you.
Lord Jesus, let the chains fall off. The chains of fear and anxiety that paralyze us, that cripple us, that torment us, that stop us from doing your will in our lives. Lord, we know you don't ask us to stop being afraid, but you do ask us to hand the fear over to you and keep on going. You ask us to not let fear dominate, whether it's there or not, but to have faith and to let you be bigger than our fears. Lord Jesus, set us free. Set us free. There's so many things that sin created, Lord. But one of the main things sin created was fear. Lord, we don't want to be afraid anymore. And over and over again, you said, fear not, do not be anxious, do not be afraid. Help us this morning, Jesus, to obey you in this area and to walk freely. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I need to say one more, while the musicians are coming, I need to say one more thing. After the first service, someone walking out said, um, Thank you for that sermon. I've been afraid to drive 100 miles an hour. I'm going to go home. That, No. <laughs> no. Be, do not be afraid of good things. Be afraid of going 100 miles an hour. 85 tops. That's all you... No, no. Uh, whatever the speed limit is. Um, anyway. I'd like you to stand. And we're going to sing our final song. The altar will be open. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. The altar will be open for anything, any, about anything. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for about fears, too. But let's worship God. And if God is talking to you, let's continue the dialogue.
is to leave to leave this place knowing that we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that you call us not to safety, but freedom in you. You call us to risk spiritually, to give up those things that come naturally to us and to seek the supernatural. So Lord, help us to now go and be people who are led by the Spirit. For where the Spirit is always already working, Lord, open our eyes to see it and help our boldness to go and join it. So Lord, as we go, Help our boldness to go forth and help our spirit to be united with the Holy Spirit and help us to be a people who are not risk averse, but a people who are willing to risk it all for you. Because Lord, when we're ready to die to ourselves, we're ready to live for you. Lord, bless your people as they go and help us to be a people who stand in Christ alone, who live for Christ alone, and who take all risks and give all things to you for your kingdom is what we live for. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all.